beloved, as you're sitting down, would you begin to open the Word of God? We'll be looking in John chapter 1, finishing out John chapter 1. And here we're going to see glory revealed to the disciples. And we're also going to see the first sign where Jesus turns water into wine. You're going to see as we go through this section that the, the ministry of John the Baptist is beginning to wind down. And the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly manifestation is about to be engaged more fully. The first thing I want you to see is what I call the forerunner of Jesus. We learned last week just a bit about John the Baptist. He had the special privilege of proclaiming the coming of Messiah. John was calling the people to repent in preparation and anticipation of the coming of Messiah. He was urging them to be baptized. John's baptism was a ritual act of cleansing, demonstrating repentance in preparation for Messiah to come. And thousands were responding so much so that it began to concern the hierarchy of the Jewish leaders and they began to come to investigate who was this one called John the Baptist. We'll pick up in John chapter 1 verse 19. This is the testimony of John, that's John the Baptist, when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. That is because some were saying that this one, John the Baptist, must surely be the Messiah. So he very, very clearly says, I am not the Christ. They ask him, what then? Are you Elijah? You will recall that the Jewish community was and the Orthodox Jews today are still looking for Elijah to come as the forerunner of the coming of Christ. So there were some who misinterpreted Malachi chapter 3 and again in Malachi chapter 4 and believed that John the Baptist must surely be Elijah who would come in bodily form to proclaim the coming of Messiah. And John the Baptist did fulfill those prophecies, but he makes it very clear that he is not the Old Testament character Elijah. And so he says, I am not the Christ, I am not Elijah. And they said, well then are you the prophet? There were those who misunderstood Moses writing in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that told about one who would come like Moses to proclaim the Lord. And they referred to him as the prophet. Now John the Baptist was a prophet, but he was not the one that they were looking for, which they termed the prophet. So he says, I am not the Christ. I am not Elijah. And I am not the prophet. Well, then who are you, they said, so that we may give an answer to those who have sent us. What do you have to say for yourself? And here you'll see that John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, declares in verse 23, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Make straight the way of the Lord. John says, I must decrease, he must increase. I am just a voice. 
He, he is the one who is coming. Jesus is coming and he will set his people free from their sin. Now the day following that investigation, you're going to see what I call the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And this really ushers in, in the more fullness, Jesus' earthly ministry. Look with me in verse 29. The next day, that is the day after this examination of who John was, John the Baptist. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him. Now, beloved John the Baptist, although John the writer, the apostle, does not tell us about it, in his account, the other three Gospels, which he assumed we're all quite familiar with, the other three Gospels write about the baptism of Jesus. John has already baptized Jesus by this point. And he saw the manifestation of the Trinity when God the Father spoke, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And he saw an eyewitness account of the Spirit of God in the form of a dove lighting upon the Lord. That is a picture of the Trinity. I so hope my jewelry will catch on to my clothes. That's what you hope for when you pick out your outfit. I can't wear earrings because they click on the microphone, so I'm gone heavily on bracelets, and now they are catching on my clothes. I don't know what to make of that. Let me move on. So the next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The proclamation. There he is. There he is. He is the one, the Lamb of God. That is him. That is the one of whom I have been telling you was coming. I was sent as the forerunner, but I am not he. I am not Elijah. I am not the prophet. There he is. Can you imagine the stir? I tell you, I believe that John's voice bellowed out. And caught the attention of everyone as they turned to look at the long-awaited Messiah. Now you understand there was nothing about the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, his earthly appearance, that would cause anyone to believe he was the Messiah. He did not have a halo. You understand that, right? There were not angels going about his head singing hallelujah, hallelujah, worthy is the Lamb. None of that. He was a Jewish rabbi, and when they looked upon him, he did not seem very special to the physical eye. And yet John declares, that's the one. That is him. Behold, the Lamb of God, the title Lamb of God, foreshadows Jesus' ultimate sacrifice on the cross. He came, beloved, to be the one and only sacrifice for sin. Do you understand that for centuries the Jews have been sacrificing the blood of bulls and goats and lambs? And he declares him to be the one and only true atonement for sin that all of those sacrifices had pointed to the Lamb of God. 
The timing of this proclamation is especially poignant. The Passover feast was soon to take place. It was approaching. This was the single most important feast in the Jewish calendar. Passover commemorated the exodus from Egypt, the birth of the Hebrew nation, the demonstration of redemption by the blood of the Lamb. All of this pointed to Jesus Christ. And now he's here. And while John could have declared him to be any number of names that would speak to his deity and would have been absolutely accurate, the name he has chosen to bestow upon him, led by the Spirit of God, is Lamb of God. Because beloved, beloved, when he becomes your once for all time sacrifice for sin, then he becomes to you all that he is. And this deity, oh, the expression Lamb of God. John Phillips says in his commentary that I highly recommend, it's called Exploring the Gospel of John, says this, as John spoke, it is likely that the bleeding of sheep could be heard and that people could see flocks being driven towards Jerusalem in preparation for the Passover feast. John drew attention away from them to Jesus, the true Passover lamb, whose sacrifice would procure eternal redemption for all of, hand, all of mankind and make absolutely obsolete the Passover of the Jews. Do you see the significance of it? When he declared him to be the son, or excuse me, the lamb of God. The lamb of God. He goes on to say, this is he on behalf of, uh, let me try that again, verse 30. This is he on behalf of whom I have said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Remember John, the apostle, wrote in the very first verse of the first chapter, that he was from the beginning, he was with God, and he was God. So John says he's existed long before me. Verse 31, I didn't recognize him. That is, with physical eyes, with physical sight, I did not recognize he was the one, but it was revealed to me and confirmed to me by the Spirit of God and God the Father that this indeed was the Messiah. I didn't recognize him. So that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified saying, this is John the Baptist, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and he remained upon him. I didn't recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And so John the Baptist says, I myself have seen and I have testified this is the Son of God. Oh, beloved, this is glory revealed. Don't overlook it. Most of us are quite familiar with the book of John. And I tell you, the more familiar you become with the scripture, the better it is. But the danger is, beloved is that you become so familiar that you begin to skim over it. My husband and I were privileged to go into a country that if I told you the name, it might be dangerous for those we were ministering with, but they are in a very closed country, and it is very dangerous there to be a Christian. And yet, as my husband and I were privileged to go and serve in the underground there, we discovered that our students that were attending what we were teaching, every one of them knew the Old Testament and the New Testament word for word. 
preparing for the day when nobody can get a copy of the scripture. And I tell you, we stood in amazement watching this group in cadence reciting any scripture we threw out they could stand and recite. I was talking to my interpreter later, and I said, i got to tell you, I've been struggling to memorize the first chapter of Ephesians for months now, and I love that book, and I don't have it down till yet. And I can't tell you what it does to me as an American Christian to hear how these people have memorized so much Scripture. And he said, do you want to know what the downside, downside is? I said, there's a downside? And he said, yes, because head knowledge can replace heart knowledge when you become so familiar with the scripture. And I want to call you, beloved ladies, into the fullness of what John is telling us. This is glory revealed. This is the Lamb of God. You may be familiar with that term, but ask the Spirit of God to refresh you. Let that fall over you anew and afresh. This is the Son of of God. This is a testimony of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. The second thing I want you to see is what I call the disciples of Jesus. He goes on beginning in verse 20, uh, excuse me, 35 in chapter 1. Again, the next day, John, that is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. Now, the commentaries all believe this is Andrew and John, the author of this gospel. And he, that is John the Baptist, looked at Jesus as he walked. Evidently, he's standing with two of his disciples. Uh, many of the early disciples were primarily disciples of John the Baptist before they began to follow Jesus. And so they are there with their rabbi, their teacher. They're there with him. And there comes Jesus just walking in their midst. And evidently, John the Baptist, verse 36, looked at Jesus. And that word looked means to look intently and he looked at him as he walked and he said this behold the Lamb of God and the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus and Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them what do you seek and they said to him rabbi which translated means teacher where are you staying and he said come and you will see oh don't you love that come Come and you will see. Do you know that he is still inviting us to come? If you are here today and you have never, ever received him with faith and repentance, we urge you, we have prayed for you that today would be the day of your salvation, that by repentance and faith you will turn and receive this one that we are so madly in love with, that even though it's about 24 degrees below zero, we are here. Because we've got to be, we've got to be here to hear the word of God, to gather in fellowship and community and communion with our darling, loved, beloved sisters in the faith. We urge you to consider the claims of Christ. May today be the day of your salvation. We have prayed for that. That if there's anyone in our midst or anyone watching online who has never received him, that today would be the day. That you would open your heart and say, come, come in, Lord Jesus, because I tell you, he is pleading with you right now through me. And his invitation is, come, come, come and see. Come and taste and see the Lord is good. You want Jesus, you can have him. Doesn't matter what you've done, where you are, who you are, where you're from, what's in your past, what's in your presence, you may come.
still offers that invitation to come. And it says that Andrew and and John immediately followed after him. And then it says that uh, Andrew goes and finds his brother Simon. Look down in verse um, 41. He found first his own brother Simon. And what did he say to him? We found the Messiah. That is translated the Christ. Do you see, beloved, in these few verses, this is the gospel. Jesus said, come. And once you've received me, go and tell. Do you see that in just these few verses? The invitation to come to Jesus, but having tasted him, to go and tell. I tell you, we're living in a world that is so broken and damaged. People need to hear the message that Jesus saves. And he's sending out those of us who have heard the truth, who have received Christ with repentance and faith, to go and tell others. And immediately it says that uh, a Simon, who Jesus would rename Peter, came as well. And then Philip and Nathaniel joined the band as well. There were five of the disciples in this beginning of this, or excuse me, the ending of chapter one, that responded to the call and received. Jesus Christ. I'm going to move quickly because the bulk of the lesson is going to come out of chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, and that most likely means the third day after his arrival in Galilee, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, the commentators, at least the ones that I looked at, and there were many, they believe that this was most likely a relative of the Lord Jesus that was getting married for several reasons, but perhaps the most telling is that Mary seems to be part of the hostess team that is serving refreshments there at the wedding. Now, a Jewish wedding, beloved, lasted for days. It often would begin on Wednesday, excuse me, It often began on Wednesday and would go on sometimes into the weekend. And it was up to the groom's family to provide all of the refreshments. In verse 2, Jesus and his disciples, they were invited to the wedding. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus came to him and said, They have no wine. They have no wine. Now, in this culture, hospitality was everything. In fact, the Jewish community is still well known for being people of hospitality. And so for them to run out of food was really unthinkable. But for it to happen at a wedding, it was catastrophic. And so Mary, the mother of Jesus, now commentators believe since Joseph is not mentioned being there, that most likely Joseph has already died by this point. We don't know that for certain, but we assume so. He is not mentioned. She did not go to him. Rather, she came to the Lord Jesus Christ. And she says, well, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not come. Now, his response seems rather brisk and seems kind of cryptic. So let's break this down just a little bit. First of all, the term woman, where in our culture is not how you would speak respectfully to a woman, to your mother, to an older woman. In that culture, what it meant was something very similar to when we say ma'am. 
And so he spoke to her respectfully and reverently, although it does not seem to translate here. You will recall that from the cross, he spoke to her from the cross as he put her into the care of John. And do you remember what he called her there? Woman, woman. But this is not an instance of poor manners. Now, I just am gonna, I'm just going to step away from my notes right now and just tell you a thing or two. <laughs> I want to tell you something that just flies all over me. And that is that in, you want to know, I can tell. <laughs> in our culture, we are losing manners. Uh, yes, we are. Yes, we are. Now, I want you to understand that manners are not a work of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of the Spirit. But one of the fruits of the Spirit is kindness. And I believe manners for the Christian can flow out of kindness for heaven's sake. So I want to encourage you, even though the world seems to be set against this, that you reinvent manners in your home. Craig and I raised two boys. Now, my mother-in-law was, many of you knew Frances, and she was a stickler for manners. I want to tell you from the time Mr. Stockdale was a little boy, he was never allowed to be disrespectful to his mother. If his dad was anywhere nearby... And his dad trained him by example and modeling kindness towards his wife and his children. And so when our boys came along, Mr. Stockdale absolutely demanded on them beyond their Christian training, I'm talking about, from the earliest times when they were little bitties, long before they came to faith in Christ, that they have and use nice manners. Is it just too much to ask? I will tell you, young moms, you need to train your children in nice manners. And if I thought it might, if I didn't think it would do some damage to this text, I would tell you it's scriptural because Jesus talked with good manners to his mother. I might still work on that. I tell you, you train your children up in the way they should go in the things of the Lord, and you add to that training nice manners, it will set them worlds apart in school with their teachers because it builds respect for authority, for elders, for anybody. It will set them a place in the it will set them apart in the workplace. It will set them apart in their marriage relationship when it will be second nature to them to be kind and mannerly towards their spouse. I need to move on. But that was worth a few minutes, wasn't it? I mean, come on, come on. So he speaks to his mother courteously and calls her ma'am. But he says, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Jesus was instructing his mother on a new relationship that was being initiated as his public ministry began as it did, beloved, although he'd always been fully God and fully man, and Mary above all knew that, but there was so much about all of this she could not understand. Even back in the earliest days, it says she treasured these things and just pondered them in her heart. 
She couldn't begin to understand all that that meant. And I believe at this point he is saying, Mother, now I'm about the father's business. And redefining the relationship with his mother. And it appears from her response that while she did not understand what he was saying, she received it and she trusted his discernment. And may I say, beloved, the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I've got to say, he does things in my life I cannot understand. And I've simply learned that the walk of faith sometimes means enduring doing it without a net. Can I get a witness in the house? I simply trust myself to the Lord Jesus, his discretion, his discernment, his timing. That's what was happening here. Now look back in the scripture in the text and it says that she said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. And may I say there's never been any better advice given. And whenever anybody comes to you for counsel as you work through whatever the issue is with them, please at the very end of this say, you must take this and get it from the Lord. And whatever he says, then do it. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for Jewish custom, a purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, draw out now and take it to the head waiter. And so they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine... And did not know where it came from, but the servants had drawn the water they knew. And the head waiter called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. John Phillips said that those water bottles represented the Jewish rituals of cleansing. And that when Jesus turned that water into wine, what he was telling them is that the Judaism has now been fulfilled, has fulfilled its purpose. And the new wine symbolized a new creation, Christianity, full of unspeakable joy and full of glory. Now, beloved, what's very interesting about this text, and I just want you to know I'm going to move into this so prayerfully and carefully, but what's very interesting is everybody wants to know, was this fermented wine or not? And I want to tell you, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is found in verse 11. It was the beginning of his signs Jesus did in Canaan of Galilee and manifested his glory so that his disciples... Those who followed after him might believe in him. That's the point of the story. But somehow we've gotten fixated on was this fermented wine or not. I want to quote from William Barclay. This was in your book. For a Jewish feast, wine was essential. It was not that people were drunken. But in the East, wine was an essential. Drunkenness was, in fact, a great disgrace. And they actually drank their wine diluted in a mixture composted of two parts of water, to, excuse me, two parts of wine to three parts of water. 
Now, I want you to know I have read just countless commentaries on some of the very best minds I believe the Christian community has to offer. Some of the most conservative Bible commentators, and they are divided down the middle on whether it was fermented or not. But they all declare, that's not the point of the story! And yet I realize that in the culture that we are living, within the context of Christianity, this is a hot button. And so very carefully I would like to speak to it, but in order to make sure that I don't interject something I don't intend to, I have written out my text that I would like to give to you and I'm going to read it, something I simply never do. But may I speak to you from my heart? Because the use of beverage alcohol is a bit of a hot bucket, hot button, excuse me, of late. Yes, reading really helped, didn't it? And it's a bit of a hot button of late in evangelical circles. So I would like to briefly address the issue I am choosing to read to you my comments in order to assure that I handle this matter delicately but accurately. I'd like you to know that I've been walking with the Lord for over 40 years and during most of that time I have been involved and engaged in ministries to family. I have a deep personal concern about the casual use of alcohol in the community of Christianity. It is almost certain to bring unintended and undesired consequences in one's life or the lives of one's loved one. The issue of beverage alcohol has become quite divisive among Christians. I have prayerfully determined to briefly address the issue. I'd like to start by saying that my church, Bellevue Baptist Church, and our denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, has long held to the teaching and preaching of total abstinence concerning the use of alcoholic beverages. But I realize, having said that, that we have many denominations represented in our study here, including those online, and consequently we may have and probably do have differing convictions on the use of alcoholic beverages. And it is not my desire to be misunderstood or to be perceived as divisive to the body of Christ in any degree or to engage in any discussion, for I fear that would be unprofitable. Paul said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. Not all things are expedient. So I would like to say that my personal convictions for total abstinence in the area of beverage alcohol have been formed and informed largely by Romans 14. And if you will hold your place there in John and turn with me very quickly to Romans 14. I would encourage you to read this study, uh, read and study this whole chapter. I only have time to lift out a few. So beginning in verse 12, it says, Romans 14, verse 12, So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Drop down to verse 15. For if because of food your brother is hurt, then you're no longer walking according to love. 
Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Look in verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. My main reason for not drinking is the issue of becoming a stumbling block to my spouse, to my darling children, to my precious grandchildren, to a weaker brother or sister in the faith, to a new convert, an unbeliever, or anybody who would be caused to stumble because of something that I did. Furthermore, on a more personal note, and if I might be very transparent with you for just a moment, I have a bit of an addictive personality. And I do not want to have another area of fleshly indulgence to try to moderate. I don't do that well. And should I be called in the middle of the night to minister to a need, I don't want to be required to find a designated driver. I want to be able to step into any ministry at any time with a clear mind, a clean heart, and in full control of all my faculties. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, Do not be drunk with wine, this is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. While I felt I needed to briefly address this issue, I trust I have carefully outlined my personal convictions without alienating any who might have a differing opinion. Now back to our text. The story is about our Lord who loved people and who went where they were. He was invited to a wedding at the outset of his earthly ministry. He had plenty to do, right? But he loved people and he wanted them to come to know the saving knowledge of Christ, that he had come to set his people free, to break the bondage of sin and to be the ultimate once-for-all sacrifice for sin. And so we see him there at a wedding. And using my sanctified imagination, I can just see him as he's moving through the crowd and he's laughing and he's mingling and he's fellowshipping and he's enjoying the sweetness of community and uh, of uh, that time together there with family and friends. And they run out of water. Excuse me, they run out of wine. And he takes six water pots that are empty and he tells the servants, will you fill them with water? And then he turned that water into the best wine. The best wine. Beloved, this is such a picture of our Lord who does everything exceedingly abundantly above everything we could ask or think. And the head waiter said, my goodness, you've saved the best for last. Listen to me here. This is not the best. We are pilgrims on a path that is painful and bitter at times, but this is not our home. Jesus is saving the best for last, and one day, one day, I tell you, the sky will break open, and there he will be. And he will come for his bride, the church.
And beloved, we will be caught up with him. We will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will worship him. We will see him as he is. The scripture says we don't know what we're going to be like, but listen to me when we see him. That's, that's who we will be in an instant changed into his likeness forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. That is the glory revealed. Oh, Lord Jesus, until we see you face to face, may we be found faithful. And Father, would you forgive us when we're so quick to judge and so quick to become divisive on things we don't fully understand or know or perceive. Would you help us to become one in Christ and let you sort out all the rest of it? But God, could we just agree? That Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Our prayer is even so. Come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you.